And we're going to see the difference between generosity and greed. We're going to see the difference between uh, Santa Claus and the Grinch. Uh, we're going to see this picture of the impact of life's seemingly little decisions and the fact that every road leads somewhere. But before we get to that, let's recap Abram's story thus far. We met him at the end of chapter 11. Uh, we were told he lived with his father uh, in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is a pagan land known later as Babylon and known today as southern Iraq. He uh, went with his father and his father's clan, uh, traveling to a place called Haran, and there in Haran, he received a calling from the one true God, never having known apparently anything about the one true God. And God comes to him and says, Abram, I want you to follow me. You're going to have to leave everything uh, that you've been comfortable with, everything that you have known. You're going to have to leave it all behind. And you're going to go with me. And you're going to walk with me. And your life is going to be defined not by any of the things you've been defining it by, but your life is going to be defined by your relationship with me. So I'm going to ask you to walk with me. And he doesn't even tell him where they're going. He just says, I'll let you know when you get there. And so he's called from Haran, and he takes his family with him. Uh, once his father has died there in Haran, he is now the patriarch of the clan. And uh, he has uh, a nephew, because his brother has also died, and his nephew, his name is Lot, and Lot also travels with him. And they begin to follow this path that is being laid out before them as they walk. And they go up to a place called uh, Bethel. And there between Bethel and Ai, they build an altar to the Lord and, and worship him. And while they're there in that area, in what is uh, known as Canaan and will later become the promised land, while they're there, there's a famine. And, and this is the time that we see Abram just kind of taking matters into his own hands, and he decides, well, uh, I went to the place where God has led me, and there's no food here, and there's no way to grow food here, and there's no way to take care of my family, so I need to do something. And so uh, apparently on his own initiative, he gets up and goes down to Egypt because it's well watered. There's a Nile River there, and uh, they sojourn in Egypt for some period of time. And that's where he tells his wife, tell everybody you are my sister. And Pharaoh takes his wife to be his wife. And apparently, uh, some sort of curse falls on the, on the house of Pharaoh because Pharaoh becomes aware that somehow his house is being uh, punished for something and discovers that in fact, he's married another man's wife. Now he's already paid a dowry He's already made Abraham much richer than he was when he got to Egypt. But he takes this woman back to Abram and says, take your wife back and get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. And so the scripture tells us that they leave Egypt and they go to a place called the Negev. Now the Negev basically means the southern land. And, and basically when you're looking at a map of Israel, the Negev is down below. It's sort of between Egypt and Israel. And they're, they're there in the Negev, and um, they, uh, they are confronted with 
a crossroads. And we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 13 and follow along as I read. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. If you're a person who marks in your Bible, circle very rich or highlight that or underline it or whatever you do. Verse three, he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So he's done all of this. He's gotten into trouble with Pharaoh. He's gone down into Egypt. He's become much richer and he's come back and he's basically back at the same place he was to begin with. And that's the place, verse 4, of the altar which he had um, made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You're going to see this is a trend in Abram's life. Seems like every time he gets to a new place, first thing he does is builds an altar and makes it a place of worship. And he's sort of claiming this land for God as he goes through. Verse 6, and the land could, um, no, verse 5. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. So I want you to notice, I told you to underline, Abram was already at this point very rich. Now, very rich in their terms, was defined in terms of several things. Number one, what did you have in the way of livestock? He had a huge store of livestock, various kinds of sheep and, and uh, camels and donkeys and all kinds of stuff. And uh, the second thing was uh, gold and silver. It says he was also very wealthy in gold and silver. He was very rich in precious metals. And the third thing was he had this huge clan, he had sort of become the patriarch of his father's clan, and now all of these people were traveling with him, and the, and the book of Genesis keeps talking about the fact that God's adding to their number as they go. And so, I don't know, it's some combination between more people being born into their family, more servants that they are taking, and more um, employees that they have to take care of their stuff. They're becoming basically almost a kingdom unto themselves, this, this nomadic traveling group of people. And it's not just Abram who's rich, but Lot is also rich. And he has a lot of livestock. And so the livestock are, are mixing and they're getting them mixed up and the herdsmen are beginning to argue with one another and some scuffles are breaking out among the employees and it's not going well. And so uh, they have all of this wealth and Abram is the leader of the clan. Now, you have to understand, in those days, people lived in clans. And the patriarch, the leader of the clan, was the de facto king. He owned everything. He was in charge of everything. All the wealth was technically his until the point where uh, he died. And then it was distributed to other people. And the next eldest male would become the patriarch. And Abram is the man. You don't question him. You don't challenge him. You don't disobey him. And you don't make it without him. So they're all a part of Abram's clan, which is what makes what happens next so incredibly, incredibly weird. Uh, in verse eight, follow along with me. So Abram said to Lot, 
Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. If to the right, I will go to the left. Now, to the original audience reading this, this would have been a shocking story. What do you mean the patriarch says to the younger man, uh, you can choose what you want. You get whatever you want. It's a, it would be unheard of. It's never happened before. And here's Abram standing there with Lot and they're looking out on the land. Now, and by the way, who is the one who has the promise from God? Abram. Abram. Lot is tagging along because of Abram's kindness. And, and Abram says to Lot, you pick. You can have anything you want. And whatever little piece of land you decide to leave me, I'll go there. Now, what should Lot have said according to custom? Yeah, he should have said, oh no, my Lord, you choose. And whatever little piece of land you give me, I will take. Or if you choose to give me nothing, I will just stay with you and serve you. That's what he should have said. That's what everyone listening to the story would expect him to say. It would be out of the question that he would say, cool, that's out of the question. And yet, look at how he responds. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Basically, Lot stands there with all this land before him. Now, it's hard for us to picture this. I want to show you a map so you know what we're talking about. Okay, this is basically an aerial picture of the topography there. Okay, up at the top or near the top, you see that body of water. That's the Sea of Galilee. And then the Jordan River flows out of the Sea of Galilee and it flows down into the Dead Sea, which is the other body of water you see in the middle there. Okay, now you see Sodom is over here and Hebron is up there. Now, the truth is, we don't know exactly where Sodom was because the scripture is gonna tell us a little bit later that God's gonna utterly destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and several of the surrounding cities, right? They're utterly destroyed. The scripture says God wipes them off the face of the earth. We don't have any ruins that show those cities today. But here's what we have giant deposits of brimstone. There are giant deposits of brimstone on the southern end of the uh, uh, Dead Sea and around the eastern side of the southern end of the Dead Sea. And, and the belief is that that's where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar were. And uh, the brimstone, which is not normal in that area, exists because God rained out of heaven fire and brimstone and covered those cities. And they're utterly destroyed and turned to ash. 
So he is standing there and he looks and he says, well, I see that there's some hills over here on the western side and then there's a river and there's some hills on the eastern side. Between those hills where the river is, is the Jordan Valley. And the Jordan Valley is some of the most fertile land on earth even today. It's spectacularly beautiful. It's green, it's lush. The river flows down through there and uh, it's well watered. It's perfect for farming. It's perfect for grazing cattle or sheep or anything like that. And so what he does, Lot looks and he says, I'll take the well watered land. I'll take the Jordan Valley. And, and Abram says, cool, you take the Jordan Valley. And Abram takes his people and goes up into the hills where Hebron is. And he's going to live among the hills. Now, I'm not a rancher. I don't know a whole lot about this, but I do know this. If, you're, if your business is ranching and you're dealing with sheep and cattle and all of that kind of stuff, what you want is well-watered lands, not steep hills. Lot gets the good land, and Abram takes the bad land. Now, this is a brilliant business decision on Lot's part. It doesn't take a genius to know that that's the good land. It's a brilliant business decision if making money is your highest priority. It's a brilliant decision. By the way, what are your highest priorities? Do we even ask ourselves those questions very often? What are the things that you value more than everything else? What are the things that you prioritize above everything else? Different people, the answers would be different. Money, fame, power, happiness, family, uh, honoring God, health, prosperity, treasures in heaven. One thing about life is that it has to be prioritized. So whatever's at the top of your list is at the top of your list at the expense of everything that's below it, right? You're going to take away from something else in order to prioritize these things that are your highest priorities. How many successful business people, they got the corner office, they have the big salary, they have the stock option, they have their name on the sign and the, and the personal parking space and the whole deal, and they have everything except their family, which got mortgaged along the way because it took so much effort to get to what they made their first priority, which was success in their business. How many times do we hear about, about successful athletes or entertainers who focus so much on their careers because it takes so much to make it to the top of their fields? Fame and fortune and extravagant lifestyles that come with that, and they focus so much on that that they mortgage their values, and they end up suicidal, and they end up on drugs, and they end up with these tragic stories that we read about all the time. You know, it's so interesting this week, uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush passed away, and so if you're watching the news, they're doing these montages about him and talking about him. It was so interesting. Uh, he served one term as a president, and, and he, he served at the end of the Cold War. Uh, he was president when the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, there were numerous things that he did. Um, uh, he drove... 
Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. A lot of things that he did in his presidency that are notable, but everybody they interviewed wanted to talk about his devotion to his family. That his family was the number one priority in his life. How tough would it be to be president of the United States and still be devoted to your family? And somehow, apparently, he was. But that's not the story we usually hear. How many parents have focused so much on their children that when they finally send the last one out the door, they turn and look at their spouse and discover they're married to a stranger? We have to prioritize our lives based on what matters the most. And if we don't, we're going to find that there is a high price to pay. Again, we see these two men standing at a crossroads, and there are roads to choose between. Lot makes his decisions for different reasons than Abram makes his decisions. But I'm getting ahead of myself in the story. Lot took the expedient road, the road to riches, the, the, uh, the road to uh, power and authority and, and greatness, and Abram chose generosity, and Abram chose to build altars. He chose the road less traveled. In fact, Jesus talked about a road less traveled, didn't he? He talked about a wide road that leads to destruction and a narrow road that leads to life. And he talked about how we stand at this crossroads and every one of us has a choice, and that wide road looks so great. It's a nice, comfortable ride. The narrow road looks looks windy and scary and costly. And Jesus says the road you choose will make all the difference. Look at verse 14 again. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. So he goes up into the hill country. God apparently takes him up onto a high hill and, and says, look, as far as you can see, I want you to do a 360. I want you to take the whole thing in, in every direction from this high hill, as far as you could see, all of this land is what I meant when I said I'm promising this land to your descendants. Everything, north, south, east, and west. Now here's what I don't want you to miss. Guess what land that included? The land that Lot chose. See, Lot's story is going to spin downward very quickly in the next couple of chapters. We're going to see it, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself with this, but, but ultimately this land goes to Abram and his descendants anyway. So while Lot was pitching his tents towards Sodom, Abram was dwelling in the hill country of Canaan. And why did he pitch his tents towards Sodom? Because Sodom was the great metropolis in that area. Sodom was the place where there was industry. It's the place where there was jobs. It's the place where travelers came and passed through on the road. It was a place where he could do business. So he didn't move into Sodom. That would be crazy because they had a reputation there for wickedness. He wasn't going to go into a wicked land. So what did he do? He set his tents up and he dwelled along the road that went into Sodom. And he thought, I'll deal with these people as they come and go. And he made a lot of money doing it. But Abram is looking out in this land, and it's all going to be his. And what's he do? Well, verse 18, then Abram moved his tent 
and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. I mean, this is probably what should have been on his tombstone. Here lies Abram. He built an altar to the Lord. Everywhere he went, he built an altar to the Lord. His life was about altars. In Romans, Paul says, our lives are meant to be a living sacrifice. That is to say, we need to have a little inflatable blow-up altar that we take with us everywhere we go. And as soon as we stop somewhere, we need to blow up that altar and we need to put our lives on it and say, God, we belong to you here. And if you move me over here, I'm gonna put an altar there and I'm gonna lay on that altar here because I belong to you. And Abram, as we will see, is is clearly an imperfect man. He makes a bunch of mistakes, just like you and I make a bunch of mistakes, but his life is characterized by the worship of the one true God. And we see him building these altars again and again and again. And these two men give us an idea of their priorities, where Lot moves towards Sodom so that he can build his riches. Abram chooses generosity and builds altars. And, and I want to point out some things as, we, as we've looked at the whole chapter now. I want to point out some things that are kind of takeaways from this story. And I'm so tempted. I was so tempted to just teach like five chapters here because Lot's story sort of unfolds before our eyes and it's fascinating and we're going to get to that. But, but instead, I think there's so much to take out of this chapter where we see two men standing at a crossroads and what, there's a choice between greed and generosity and we see the, the choice that they make. So the first thing I want to point out is this. Greed is a deadly spiritual poison. It's a deadly spiritual poison. And, and it's really easy to recognize greed in other people. We all know what it looks like. It's really easy when we see somebody who lives a life greedily and they're hoarding and they're keeping everything to themselves and they don't want to share and they're always trying to get more, more, more. We can see that. But it's very difficult to recognize greed in ourselves. It's really hard to look in the mirror and realize that there's a greedy person looking back at me. A lot of times we don't notice that. And what I'm hoping today is that those of us who need to have our hearts checked for greed would go through a process with God where he'll show us our hearts today. Because if you allow greed to guide your life, it will lead to destruction of the things that matter the most. I want you to turn to 2 Peter. So it's just the complete opposite end of your Bible. Go all the way to the back, just before Revelation. You get 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Before 1st John is 2 Peter. So go to 2 Peter chapter 2. And, and I want you to notice that, that much, much later, Peter writes with this story in mind. And here's what he says. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued Lot, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Peter's description of Lot is not that Lot was an ungodly man. 
It's that Lot was a righteous man living among ungodly people. Now, if, you, if we were to read on chapters 14, 15, 16, what we find out in Genesis is that Lot begins by pitching his tents facing Sodom. But then we find out just a little while later that he's living in Sodom. He moves into the city. And then we find out just a little while later that he's not just living in the city, but he is now on the city council of Sodom. He becomes an official in the most wicked city in the history of the world. He's a leader in this city. And yet Peter calls him a righteous man. What happens when you have a relationship with the one true God, but you live in the midst of debauchery? It torments your soul, it says. He, he lived with a tormented soul. He just was shriveling up spiritually because of what he surrounded himself with, all because he needed to make a good business decision. And by the way, and again, we'll get to this, but it doesn't go well for his family. It doesn't go well for his wife. It doesn't go well for his kids. And when Sodom is finally destroyed, he ends up living in a cave with his two daughters. And he gets into an incestuous relationship with both of his daughters. And they bear children by their father in this cave. And those children grow, go on to be the, the nation of Edom, the Edomites, who are enemies of the nation of Israel in perpetuity. It's just an unbelievably tragic story. This righteous man makes a decision just for business purposes. There's nothing here that tells us that he, that he sought God's wisdom. There's nothing that tells us that he sought direction. He doesn't humble himself with, uh, with Abram and allow Abram to make the decision. He, he grabs for all the gusto he can get when he can get it and spends the rest of his life paying a terrible price. Lot had already been very wealthy before he ever moved to Sodom. And there his wealth increased, but it cost him everything. He had a miserable life, according to 2 Peter 2. He ends up living in a cave. Stay tuned for that. And his story ends with this, his legacy, which is the Moabites. You know, you don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians 5, basically in verses 3 through 7, Paul gives us one of those lists of, you know, the types of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, you know, murderers and thieves and all that stuff. And, and you know what's right there in the middle of that list? Greedy people. And we think, well, everybody's a little greedy, aren't they? Why would greedy people be stuck in with murderers and liars and thieves and adulterers and all of this? And and God is saying greed is one of those heart sins that not everybody can pick up on. They don't always see it in you, but it destroys you from the inside out. It's devastating. And they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Second thing I want to point out from Genesis 13 is that Lot's problem was not money. His problem was the love of money. And there's all the difference in the world there. 
It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not even wrong to want to be wealthy. It is not wrong to work hard to become wealthy. Nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, there, there's undoubtedly people listening to this today who are, who are going, look, I, God just wired me this way. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a business person. I'm driven to be successful in business. Nothing wrong with that. And I agree, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Abraham was way richer than Lot, and he was blessed by God. And then Solomon was the richest man the world has ever known. And he was blessed by God. God has no problem with wealth. There are so many places in Scripture where it tells us that wealth is the sign of God's blessing in our lives. And in many cases, that's the case. And, and there are preachers who are preaching that if you have any wealth or you have any ambition or you're trying to make something of your business career or something like that, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves because we should all just humble ourselves and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And all I could say is I don't think they ever read the Bible because the Bible is just filled with examples of God blessing people with all kinds of great material things. It's a norm that God does that. There are other preachers who will preach <coughs> that... Um, you should, you should expect to be blessed with great wealth. That to be a Christian, it's God's will for you to be incredibly wealthy. And if you're not, it's probably some sin in your life or lack of faith. And when I hear that, I wonder, have they ever read the Bible? Because if you've read the Bible, you know that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. You know that he said, you can't follow me unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, right? You, you know that, that uh, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus said, in your case, you're going to have to sell everything and give it away and then you can follow me. Was that because it was bad to be rich? No, there was, Jesus had no problem with the fact that the rich young ruler had money. His problem was with the fact that the money had him. He was, he was controlled by his love of money. And Jesus said, there can only be one God in your life. It's going to be me or it's going to be someone or something else. So don't be surprised if you're wealthy and being blessed by God or if you're living in poverty and being blessed by God. There's countless examples of both of those things. The issue is not how many dollars are in your bank. The issue is how many dollars are in your heart. What do you love? What do you prioritize? Listen, anything that comes into our lives that comes between us and Christ has to go. That, that's his standard, not mine. Lot's problem was not that he was in Sodom. I mean, people have flourished in wicked lands many times. We, I mean, Daniel flourished in Babylon. Joseph flourished in Egypt. It's possible to flourish anywhere that you are. It wasn't that he was in Sodom. It was that he was ignoring the spiritual dangers and mortgaging his family to get what he could from Sodom. And he paid a horrible price. See, unlike Daniel, who was in Babylon, and unlike Joseph, who was in Egypt, Lot chose Sodom for what it had to offer him. And he ignored the huge cost to himself and his family. So greed is not defined by what I have or what I want. It's defined by the price I'm willing to pay to get what I want. 
It's an issue of priority. And it should make us all think, what do I value most? Not, not what would I like people to think I value most, but when I really look at the way I prioritize my time and my money and my energy and my talent, what do I clearly think matters the most? There's nothing wrong with dreaming big and driving for success, but never compromise what truly matters for something that's just temporary. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, turn there as long as we're still over here in 2 Peter uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, very famous verse. Most people know some part of this verse. And by the way, that gets you in a lot of trouble. If you ask most people, they would say, there's a verse in the Bible that says money is the root of all evil. There is no verse in the Bible that says money is the root of all evil. They're thinking of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, which says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and nobody knows what it says after that. Here's what it says. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's how it's a root of all sorts of evil. When we long for it, we're, able, we're willing to wander away from that which matters so much more, and we end up with grief as a result of it. Turn to the book of Proverbs, right in the middle of your Bible, Old Testament, and go to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. And wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Did you know that's not just true sometimes? That's true all the time. Wealth makes itself wings and flies away. The wealth that you have right now, you will not have one day. It's either, it's either there's some financial hardship is going to befall you and your money's going to go away, or, or there's going to be a, a downturn in the economy and you're going to lose your job, or you're going to have tons of money and die. And one day, no matter how much money you have, you are going to die. And when you die, your wealth is going to somebody else. Probably somebody you don't want to have it. <laughs> right? That's how it works. The, these, and, the, and then it floats in front of us and we're like, oh, got to get some more. I got to have it. It will satisfy me. And we chase it and chase it. And while we're chasing it, we're wandering away from that altar we built. And so quickly, it becomes the focus of our lives to do anything to get it. And then once we have it, we'll do anything to keep it. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 22 What is desirable in a man is his kindness. It is better to be a poor man than a liar. I love that verse. It's better to be a poor man than a liar. So often we love money so much that we are tempted to be dishonest. 
Remember 10 years ago, the mortgage crisis hit? I mean, how many thousands and thousands of people lost their homes? And every one of those, a tragic story in and of itself. Every one of them. And, and perhaps somebody here lost your home in the mortgage crisis. And, and every one of those stories is different. And I don't know your story, and I'm not commenting on your story. But let me just use this as an example of this general biblical principle. Because what happened in the mortgage crisis was twofold. Uh, either there were people who, in order to get a house that they really couldn't afford, were dishonest in their mortgage process and then got a house they couldn't pay for. Or in more cases, a banker was dishonest in his desire to sell a loan and he doctored things so that people were getting houses they could not afford. And when it came time to pay the piper, those people couldn't afford the houses. And they got themselves in that situation because in essence what they said is, I would rather be a liar than a renter. Think about careers and how many people cut corners and lie and deceive in order to move up in their careers. And basically what they're saying is, I would rather be a liar than not get this promotion. Or, or people who, who lie on a, um, a college application. I would rather be a liar than go to community college. Or, or people who... Um, Lie on their resume. I mean, it's not a lie. I've just padded some things here. You know, I was at this job for two weeks. I made it two years. What are they going to know? I, I, you know, I, I didn't exactly get a master's degree, but I took a class, right? And what we're saying is, I'd rather be a liar than work at a job I'm qualified for. Are you willing to compromise God's honor in order to get what you want? If so, you're going to find yourself in real trouble. Third thing I want to point out, when we fall into the trap of greed, it usually flows from one of two major sources. It's either the desire to be respected or the desire to be happy. It's either, I want people to look at me and be impressed. The more I have, the more people will look up to me. And if that's the case, you, you know, those people are marked by things like having to have the name brand. So picture this. Uh, we call you at home tomorrow and we say, hey, we had a secret drawing. We just picked a name out of church members out of the hat and you have won a brand new Mercedes Benz. Come on down and pick it up. That'd be cool, right? Do you come, you drive in in your old clunker, you know, and this is just spewing smoke as you come in and there's this beautiful silver Mercedes Benz sitting right out front with a bow on it and your name on the na name tag. And you're just blown away, and as you get to it, you notice something unusual about this Mercedes. Instead of that, like, star hood ornament on the front, it says Kia. <laughs> and on the back, the Mercedes emblems have been removed, and it says Kia. It's a Mercedes, but it looks like a Kia. Does that lose any luster for you? 
See, sometimes what we want is to feel like people are impressed with us and we will make compromises in an area of greed in order to get there. The other thing is when we just want to be happy. And who doesn't want to be happy? Listen, I want to be happy. I love happiness. Give me a choice between happy and sad. That's not tough. I like happiness. Nothing wrong with happiness. But sometimes that desire to be happy and that misunderstanding of what will make us happy can just destroy us. I I was thinking about um, Michael Jordan. Maybe you heard of him. He was a basketball player. Michael Jordan, uh, you may or may not know this, but uh, he was cut from his JV high school basketball team. Do you know that? How'd you like to be that stupid coach? (laughs) I'm the guy that cut Michael Jordan. He got cut, and he tells the story, and he says, you know, when I got cut, I was heartbroken. All I wanted was to play basketball. And so I just worked and worked and worked, and I I just had this goal. I couldn't be happy until I made that high school team, and and he finally made the varsity and did pretty well. In fact, he did so well that uh, scouts started coming to the games, and he actually started thinking, I might be able to play college basketball. And he got excited. What if I could play college basketball? How great would that be? And then he started to really do well, and scouts from big schools started showing up, and he thought, what if I could get a scholarship to a really good school because I'm such a good basketball player. How awesome would that be? And he just kept growing taller and he just kept getting better. And and pretty soon the gym was filled with scouts and he got a full ride scholarship to the University of North Carolina, one of the best basketball programs in the country. And he goes to North Carolina. When he gets there, he says, I was just awed when I went on the practice court the first day because in that program at that time, there was like five or 10 guys that went on to play in the NBA. And he's coming off his high school campus going, oh, I'm in so far over my head. If I could just start on this team, I would be set for life. And he eventually works hard enough and he becomes a starter. And then he starts thinking, what if we could compete for the national championship? And that's exactly what they did. And then by his junior year, he's thinking, I can play in the NBA. What if I make the NBA? If I could just make it the NBA, oh my gosh, that would be it. I would be there. I would be so happy if I could just make the NBA. And he gets drafted after his junior year into the NBA. And then he starts thinking, you know what? You know what would be great is if I was a starter. And he becomes a starter on the Bulls. And then he starts thinking, you know what would be really good is if I could make an all-star team, if I could just be an all-star. And then he gets voted onto the all-star team and and he's recognized as one of the best players in the NBA. And then he starts thinking, you know what I really want though? Championships. If I could just win some rings, I just want a championship ring. And they win a championship and he celebrates and he's over the moon until the next day when he says to himself, I need to win multiple championships. And, and, and he does, and he goes out and wins multiple championships. And then he starts thinking, what if I could be thought of as one of the best players ever? And this list comes out of the 50 best basketball players of all time, and he's on the list of the top 50 of all time. And then he goes, you know what I want? I want to be the best basketball player of all time. And basically, there's very little argument. Most people would say he's the best basketball player of all time. He's, he's 
every one of those goals he's achieved. He's got a handful of championship rings, and he is now the best basketball player in the history of the world. And he sits back and he says, I think I'm going to try baseball. There's that, that sense of fulfillment that we're chasing, that, that we'll do anything to get. And oftentimes to get it, we're going to have to set aside things that are way more valuable, things that are way more important. And we're never, ever going to find fulfillment by something temporary. You know, there's a famous story. It's true. John D. Rockefeller was the richest man on the earth at the time that they went to him and asked him this question, how much money is enough? And he famously answered, just a little bit more. And he really nailed it. That's how we all feel. Money is nice. And to some degree, it can buy happiness, but it can never buy fulfillment. It can never buy contentment. It can, it can never buy joy. We don't have time, but you can look it up this week in your quiet time. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, Paul basically says, you know what? I am finally totally content, and I have realized that how much money I have has nothing to do with it. I could be content as a wealthy man or content as a poor man. Contentment doesn't depend on my wealth. Fourth thing, and this is ironic, greedy people are despised and never satisfied. Greedy people are despised. Let's try this. Raise your hand real high if you, if you know a greedy person. Like when I say, do you know a greedy person, someone comes to mind. Raise your hand. Okay, leave your hands up, leave them up, leave them up. Okay, I know a greedy person. Okay, now leave your hand up if you really respect that person. Very few. Very few of the greedy people we know do we respect. Um, you know what I'm talking about? The person who, who cuts you off and races for that only open space in the parking lot, Right? That, that the guy who, who won't let you out onto Huntington Drive and the busy traffic is going by? Not that I know anything about that. You know? Or the, the, the guy who's got to have the biggest piece of pie? How do we feel about those people? We despise them. What Lot thought was his pathway to greatness was actually a roadmap to a cave. And when we think of something um, fulfilling us, if we think that we need some temporary thing to give us fulfillment, we will never be satisfied. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. But when we're trying to promote ourselves, we're trying to get ourselves ahead, God stands in the way. And lastly, the path to true greatness is paved with generosity. This is an important one. The path to true greatness is paved with generosity. God's promise to Abram was repeated and expanded after he generously gave this land to Lot. Selfishness leads to entitlement. And entitlement leads to greed. 
generosity begins with humility and the focus on God, and it leads to small acts of kindness which eventually develop into a lifestyle of generosity. We have to battle greed. So how do we win this battle? I just want to get practical and make this simple. We all have families and friends. With your families and friends, how about this? Start with the little things. Listen, if you're playing a game of shoots and ladders with your seven-year-old, it's okay if he wins. It's okay. Right? Really, it's okay. If you're playing, you know, a, a game of basketball with your pastor, it's okay if he wins. Just let him win once in a while. Um, it's okay. It, it's, it's okay if, if you have to be the one that sits in the back seat. What is it with that? Kids, siblings, as soon as they walk up, front seat! You know, it's like this fight to sit in the front seat. You know, in a head-on collision, you don't want to be in the front seat. I don't know what they're thinking, right? <laughs> Got to sit in the front seat. How about just be the one that automatically goes to the back seat? How about being the one who gives away the last piece of pie? How about being the one who, who doesn't have to choose the television show? When I was a kid growing up in my house, um, my dad had a chair, right? Did, did your dad have a chair? It was his chair. And if you were sitting in his chair when he was home, it would not go well for you. I don't care who you were right? And I, I remember just thinking, give me a break. He had to be in his chair. And just last week, and I was, I was preparing this and thinking about this, and just last week, it hit me. I have a chair. <laughs> I'm so ashamed. I said, I'll never be like my dad. Look at me. I, I walked in the house, my son was sitting in my seat, and I looked at him like, you're getting up, right? <laughs> how, about, how about you sit somewhere else and let somebody else have the best seat? It's not so hard to start building your character away from greed and toward generosity. In business, how about leaving something on the table now and then? I, a long time ago, I was a car salesman. And in the car business, you make your money on um, commission, 100% commission. I remember uh, one of the biggest commissions I ever made, I was selling Toyotas. And at that time, you could buy a new Toyota truck. There was an ad in the paper every day. You could buy a new Toyota truck for $1 over invoice from any dealer. That was the deal. It was all about volume. And, and this young couple comes into the dealership, and I met them, and they said, we want to buy a truck. I said, great. And they said, I said, what, which one you're looking at? They said, well, we, we can't afford much. We, we should probably just get the cheapest one. So like any good salesman, I took them to the most expensive one, showed them all the bells and whistles that they can't live without, and convinced them that they should have this truck. And uh, they said, oh, we don't think we can afford it. I said, oh, come on, I'll work the numbers, right? So I went and sat down with them, and I started working the numbers. And I said, how much could you afford to put down? And they were like, uh, not more than 5,000 bucks. I, I was expecting 500. I wrote that down. And how much could you afford for payments? I said, probably not more than about 450 a month. I wrote that down. It's an $8,000 truck. I wrote that down. I did the math in my head. I said, huh, 
They just offered me $18,000 for this truck. <laughs> what do I do? I went into my boss. I said, hey, they're willing to pay ten grand over sticker. What do I do? He said, well, I think we're going to throw in an alarm and a new stereo and a bed liner. And, you know, and we added all of it into the contract. And they were thrilled. They would left. They were so happy. They paid double what they needed to pay for that truck. And they weren't the only ones happy. I was overjoyed. I had the biggest commission I'd ever gotten. And it was coming up on Christmas. Man, my family was going to cruise. It was awesome. I couldn't wait to get home and tell my wife. We lived in these little condos. We had outdoor parking. I pulled into the parking spot and I looked next to me and it was the truck I just sold. It was my next door neighbor's. We live in condos. They're just like right around the corner from us. And, and every day from that point on, I had to live with the fact that these poor people were paying double what they had to pay. Guys, I got out of the car business after that. It's okay to leave something on the table. It's, it's okay that somebody else got a fair deal. In everyday life, it's the discipline of putting others first. Jesus said, if you want to be great, learn to be the servant of all. I mean, and that's not how we think of it. So I'll close with this. What, what is the compass that guides your major life decisions? What are your core values, your priorities? You say, I'm going to live by these things. Do, I, do you prioritize ministry and service to God? Or do you prioritize a path that you think will lift you up and get you more than you already have? Because whatever guides your decisions will determine your destiny. It's worth thinking about. Because at the beginning of this story, we saw two guys standing at the edge of a crossroads. And both of them could have been on the cover of Forbes magazine. They were doing great. But by the end of their story, one of them is in a cave and the other one is one of the most respected men of God who ever lived. He chose the road less traveled. Let's stand and pray together. Father, as we think about your generosity to us, you've given us what we could have never purchased for ourselves. Uh, we just want to be a reflection of you to others. So, Father, help us to, to let go of greed. Help us to stop believing the lies that say temporary things will satisfy us, temporary things will define us, temporary things will make us successful. Help us to live for that which is everlasting, God. Help us to live for your honor, for your glory, and to trust you to be the one who is our source of supply. Father, thank you that your word says that you will supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory if we trust you. Help us so to do. Or we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.